0: Everyone, and welcome to the LSE for tonight's event. My name is Rebecca Campbell, and I'm a fellow in the Department of Management here at the London School of Economics and Political Science. (laughs) I am absolutely delighted to welcome Farah here to the LSE today, and Farah's talk is the latest in our Women in Business public lecture series. So, Farah has the kind of CV that uh, fills most mortals with deep inadequacy. Uh, She is the editor in chief of Cosmopolitan Magazine. Where she has helped increase sales by an unprecedented 59%. Before this, she was the launch editor of Women's Health magazine, which was the most successful women's magazine launch of the millennium. Uh, in 2018, Farah was named as one of the most powerful BAME leaders in the country by The Guardian. She's also a regular spokesperson on women's issues, diversity, and careers. And that clearly wasn't enough. <laughs>
1: I feel inadequate.
0: That doesn't sound like me. So she's now authored her first book, part memoir, and part practical self-help guide called The Discomfort Zone. In the book, Farah really delightfully draws on examples from her own life as well as those of other high achievers. Um, and she argues that success can really only be achieved if we are prepared to step out of our comfort zone. To quote Farah. We are walking. We are sleepwalking into a world made for comfort, and she thinks we all need to toughen up, as the world needs people who are built for battle. I'm making her sound really fierce, but she's also frank and really funny. Uh, I, I read her description of going on stage in front of 20,000 people, and you know, with basically no warning, and it made me laugh. But actually, more well. More accurately, it actually made me break out into cold sweat even reading about it. Um, so before I hand over to Farret, some housekeeping notes. For the Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for tonight's event is hashtag LSEWomenIn. Can I please remind everyone to turn their phones on to silent? Uh, this evening's event is being recorded and will hopefully be made into a podcast, subject to nothing going wrong technically. Uh, tonight's lecture is also being live streamed on Facebook. Uh, as usual, after Farah's lecture, there will be a chance for you guys to put your questions to her. Um, there will also be a book signing uh, taking place following the event just in the foyer outside. Um, in the very unlikely uh, event of a fire, um, a fire warning, uh, we're all meant to assemble on the southwest corner of Lincoln's Inn Fields, which is opposite the this building entrance, and Cooper's. But now, will you please join me in welcoming Farah to deliver her lecture on how to succeed
1: outside your comfort zone. So does it not get made into a podcast, if I swear? Is it, doesn't it depend on that? Oh, I don't know. Okay, okay. We'll, we'll see how I go. I I'll try a to keep of, it very yeah. clean. But I am the editor of Cosmo, so it might be quite difficult. Uh, first of all, thank you so much. Um, God, it's amazing to see so many of you on... Um, it's Monday night, right? Is it Monday? Yep, Monday okay. night. Okay, Monday on Monday night. night. Yep. Um, so first of all, um, I just want to begin this talk by, um, by asking a small favor of all of you. So in a minute... Um, if you don't mind, I'd like you to all close your eyes. Not quite yet. I'm going to explain why. It's not going to be some sort of mass hypnotism. Um, but I want you to spool back your memory. And I want you to try and remember, if you can, the very, very, your very earliest memory of feeling really afraid. Okay? So if you all close your eyes now. Okay? And, and I'm going to... You know, you've not got long. You're about 10 to 20 seconds. If you have a think, go as far back in childhood as you possibly can and think about... Um, that moment when you first remember registering fear. Um, and not to make anyone more fearful, but I am going to pounce on some people in a minute and ask them to, to share that experience. So I'll give you ten more seconds. Okay. That should be enough time. I'm actually going to ask the volunteers because it's very unfair because I will pick the one person who actually was in the middle of of, of roaming through their childhood. Um, so, as, can anyone put their hands up? Can anyone um, just share? I just need two, and in the name of equality, let's have one guy and one uh, woman as well. So, um, gentleman, um, very quickly put his hand up. So obviously that's a very vivid memory. You have to speak quite loudly. Uh, <laughs> Do you have, like, one, do you remember, like, one specific moment when, when you...
0: Oh uh, yeah, being, like, around my brother's friends. Oh, I amazing. Mean, ah. Um, being, like, around my brother's friends when I was, like, I don't know, six or something, and they're very, right. like, boisterous and... Mask, I'm and I'm feeling like really this...
1: frightened by yeah, that. When I was younger. Yeah, okay, great. And can I have a lady? Uh, lady here, just, oh, just, just actually to your right-hand
2: side. <laughs> When I was about four, I went to the zoo with my cousins and my older cousin turned me upside down and downed me by my legs and he was like, I'm going to throw you in the lion's pit. Oh, my word. (laughs) (laughs) Wow.
1: Oh, my word. OK, that's probably quite traumatic. Um, I wasn't expecting that. Okay. Um, so is there anybody here? And I just need a show of hands. Is there anybody here whose whose fear was of um, hearing a very, very loud noise? Is there anybody here? Okay, lady here. A couple of people at the back. No one on this side. Okay. And um, is there anybody here whose um, earliest fear was of falling off something or falling from, from a height? So a couple of people here. Okay. Okay, thank you. So you guys obviously thought really far back because actually um, <clears throat> there's a belief that actually we are born with two intrinsic fears. And those fears are um, a fear of falling, so from heights of some sort, and fear of loud noises. So that's what it's thought, that's what scientists believe we are born with um, when we come into the world. <clears throat> so what that means is every other fear that we have, so um, fear of confined spaces, um, fear of spiders... Uh, perhaps fear of, of speaking publicly, um, fear of, of anyone whose Tinder bag uh, says they're free adventurous and not looking for anything complicated. <laughs> um, the, these, are, these are fears that we accrue um, over time. We accrue them through experience. Um, sometimes we accrue them through the culture in which we're brought up in. But there are some people who are actually born slightly more fearful than others. And um, in fact, it's thought it's around I think it's one in five babies are born um, inhibited. So they're inhibited children. And you can tell, scientists believe, um, who those kids are because when they see those kind of play mobiles hanging from the ceiling, rather than interacting with them and laughing, as as most children are inclined to do, what they do is they they arch their back and they start to cry. Now, that's only one in five babies. And out of those one in five babies, two-thirds of them remain quite inhibited. So they remain quite anxious individuals when they go off um, into adult life. So it begs the question, well, what happened to the other third? Well, it's not that um, the other third were presented with um, a world which was free and easy. Um, And it's not actually that they stopped being um, implicitly fearful. It's that as they grew up, they realized that the world was a tough place. But they figured out that actually we can be tougher, that actually the human body and mind is designed to work at it's optimum under a little bit of pressure. Human beings are designed to carry a load. And so that's what they figured out. They went out in the world, which was tough and it was difficult, but they understood that the way that you deal with that is you are brave. And I know this um, because I was one of those inhibited children. So um, when I was born, I kind of came out kicking and screaming and I never really stopped Um, until I got to kind of my my teenage years. I was a really, really fretful little girl. Um, You know, my mum would drop me off at nursery, and I would be the child that was there um, screaming, like really hysterically for hours, until I was hoarse, until I remember I I couldn't actually articulate, and I'd be banging my fist against the wall, and it didn't change. I was like that. I moved from school to school. um, Other children frightened me. Teachers frightened me. Um, I was the little girl that, you know, when people would come into the family home, I would hide behind my mum and dad's knees. Um, And this was exacerbated. You know, I was further coddled by the fact that I was um, a middle child. So I have a younger brother um, who's very outgoing, but I also have two older siblings. So I have an older sister who is very bold, very ambitious, very, uh, very extroverted. And I had an older brother. And as some of you, do we have any middle children here? You just raise your hand. Oh wow, okay. The high achievers, middle children. So so there you go, they're trying to prove a point to the world. Um but, but but the problem with being a middle child, and certainly this was my experience, it may not be your experience, but my experience was I became further coddled. So, you know, my sister and my brother they would fight my battles for me. Um, you know, they would break barriers for me. You know, at school I was protected from kind of sharking bullies because I had an elder sister and an elder brother in the same school. Um, and they kind of, and I think elder siblings can do this, they kind of taste test the world for you. They kind of pre-digest it and then they hand it to you and go, this is all that's good about the world and you don't need to worry about the bad stuff because we've sorted it out for you. And so I grew up in this kind of, surrounded really, which I thought was amazing at at the time, this kind of proverbial, um, comfort blanket where really I didn't have to do very much, um, to justify my existence, um. And it was a travesty. It really was, because when my my, my sister and my brother, as of course was always going to happen, when they moved out of the family home, they left Manchester, I was alone. And so I knew that I needed to do something um, which was going to test who I was, because I didn't really have a sense of, you know, what my weaknesses were, what my strengths were. I didn't know anything about myself. You know, I was kind of living somebody else's life. And so um, when I was 21, I went to Paris. And um, I went, I barely spoke a word um, a French. I got a job um, teaching English um, to a school. A school which, unbeknownst to me. It was um, in one of the, the toughest suburbs in all of Paris, and the toughest school in that suburb. So it was, I mean, they called it show, like it was a really, really hard school. Um, I moved in with a couple of mime artists, that was not easy, um, and um, it was really scary, and I really, really struggled, and you know, any of you that know Paris will know, it can be socially quite a chilly place, so not an easy place to make friends at all, um, and I suppose I had a decision to make. I remember in, in, in the, I think it was about like week six, um, and I'd had a really tough day uh, in the class. They didn't want to listen. And I could either, I remember, I, I, did, I did have the choice and my mum had said actually, you can come home if you want to. And I thought, no, I'm going to stick it out. And, and the next day, I remember I went into the classroom and I don't know where it came from, um, but I managed to control the class. And actually, that experience in Paris it taught me a lot. I was basically confronted with a lot of obstacles, which I'd never had to do before. And of course, obstacles, they teach you two things. They teach you your weaknesses. So that's why people often don't like um, moving through an obstacle because, you know, you have an idea of who you think you are and often obstacles present you with, well, you're not exactly who you thought you are. But also obstacles can teach you great, incredible truths about yourself. And so for me in Paris, I actually discovered um, I was okay in front of a crowd. You know, I, I, could, hold a, I could hold an audience, which... I'd never thought that I would be able to do that before. Um, and I was tough and I was street smart That, in a way that actually my parents had even told me that I was never going to be a tough, street smart kid. I actually was. So that year in Paris was absolutely transformational to me because I had stepped into my discomfort zone and it had rewarded me. It was tough, but it had rewarded me with great truths about myself. And actually, the the truth is, most of the success I've had in my life and in my career, um, it has come from those moments of discomfort. All of them, in fact, hands down, every single one. Um, My very first editorship, I edited... I edited a, a magazine called Women's Health, um, but, but actually I edited it under very, very difficult circumstances. So editorships do not come, come along very often, and I remember I'd just moved back to England. I'd been living in Australia. I'd just moved back to England. I'd got a job for the first time, so I, was, uh, I wasn't working for a while. When, we, when, we, when my husband had moved back, I'd just taken on a mortgage, um, and I was told about this job that was going. And I remember, I thought it was a bit weird because I had the job interview and I got offered the job about 45 minutes later. And I thought, this is really strange. And also they were like, we need you to walk out of your present job. You need to walk out and then we need you to start tomorrow. So um, that was kind of the the first difficult thing. Um, But I decided to do it because, you know, editorships don't come up very often. Now, of course, when I had kind of walked out of of, of my, my previous job, um, I kind of started to realise the challenges with this first editorship. And the challenges were really um, quite incredible for the industry because I think it was 2011 or 2012, it was the tail end of 2011. And that was the first kind of cataclysmic time for magazines. Lots of magazines that I had worked on were, were closing. It was kind of the dawn of digital. Um, and so people thought it was madness to launch a magazine in that climate. Um, because of that, the magazine was going to be very lean to start with. So I only had two members of staff, n- none of who could write. They were visual people, but they couldn't write. So it was just going to be me. Um, and we had almost no resources, very, very, very tiny budget Um, And the real kicker was we had six weeks in which to build a magazine, tone, personality, visuals. Uh, We had six weeks in which to do it, which fell over Christmas. Um, And if we didn't sell 100,000 copies, 100,000 copies is a lot of copies. If we didn't sell 100,000 copies from issue one, then the magazine was never going to go into issue two. So we had these, these, these huge um, pressures really hanging over us. And the truth is we didn't actually have time to be scared. And I'll talk a bit later about actually if you have time, if you have time to be scared, fear can overwhelm you and actually you're kind of good for nothing. You're kind of food for worms if that happens. Um, I mean, you've all seen stage fright, right? That's, that's what can happen. Um, so we didn't have time, and so we just had to get on with it. And we were like, right, we need to start a health magazine. Well, we can't afford any writers, we can't afford any visuals. And actually what happened is we started to think, because it, the magazines are secret projects when they're a new launch, you're not allowed to talk to anyone about them. So we couldn't even really seek outside help. And something I remember in these four walls, we're in a tiny room about this size, um, The three of us started to think very differently. The the constraints with which we were were presented forced us to trust our gut in a way that I had certainly never been told to trust my gut. I mean, you know, if it's between mind and gut, I was always told gut is just kind of these woo-woo feelings, you don't listen to it. But with Women's Health, I had to listen to my gut. And we also had to be bold and inventive because we didn't really have any other choice. And just to give you an example, I remember... And it's a shame I haven't got the, the, the visual to show you, but I remember um, it was coming up to um, Deadline, and we had, done a, we had done a feature about breast health. And we were like, how are we going to show a picture of this? Because picture, pictures of, can be very expensive, and particularly nice pictures which show kind of you know, the, the, the female physique. They can be really, really expensive, and we just didn't have that sort of money. And I remember we were thinking, God, how are we going to do this? And I cannot remember which one of it, as it was I'd love to say it was me but I don't think it was somebody looked down at their knees so they were sat on a a chair and I think they may have had new tights on and they looked down at their knees they had a skirt on and they were like if you look from above your knees look like giant breasts and then we discovered if you wore new shoes and then the tips of the, the, the shoe peeped out, it looked like a nipple and so we were like, great so the poor intern, we were used her knees and we made her put on these uh, we made her put on, on, on these new shoes and it set the tone for all the visuals because I remember it was so incredible and we blew it up huge, it was very audacious um, and that really 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 set the tone because when we launched issue one, that was the visual that everybody kept saying, "Oh my God, have you seen the breasts?" And because it was funny, and because it was bold, and because it was audacious, when we got uh, when we got to do issue two, because actually we sold by the skin of our teeth 103,000 copies on issue one, that became the template for what we did with visuals. They had to be kind of quite shocking. They had to be memorable. That would never have happened if we were not faced um, with the constraints with which we were. When I took on Cosmo, it was a different thing altogether. You know, I'd been at Women's Health for three and a half years. I was just starting to get comfortable. I remember saying to my husband, uh, it was in the June, and I said to my husband, I feel for the first time things are going really well with this magazine. And the magazine, just so you know, and I'm not saying this to be boastful, but I will explain why I'm telling you this in a minute, the magazine went on to become, I think it was... The most successful magazine launch of the millennium. That would not have happened without the constraints that we were forced to to work with. Um, But I was just getting comfortable with women's health. And then I got a phone call, uh, my CEO saying, look, how do you feel about Cosmo? Because we need to make some changes to it. Cosmo was a completely different beast because Cosmo was hugely resourced, big staff, um, a huge, iconic brand, global brand. I think there were 65 issues when, when I took over. And actually, what I was told to do is, was, to, um, was to rethink the formula. It had been so successful for so many years, but it hadn't been number one for 16, 17 years at that point. And I remember my CEO, uh, who's a brilliant, brilliant woman, she said, I'm going to give you air cover, but you just need to get your head down. And in six months, you need to get it back to number one. And um, I thought, well, I don't know how I'm going to do this because I only know how to work under difficult conditions. And I had this big team. Um, and within three months, 80% of them resigned. <laughs> so I was kind of left back to what I'd had to begin with. But you know, those six people that stayed. Again, we didn't have time to be scared. And I remember Cosmo, for any of you that are old enough to remember, one of the things that Cosmo was was really famous for was its naked centerfolds, male naked um, centerfolds, its sex advice columns. And actually, my gut feeling and the gut instinct of the people that remained with me was, these are not relevant anymore, we just need to get rid of them. And I remember one person saying to me, if you get rid of these things from Cosmo, you will have uproar because these are the sacred cows of this magazine. And again, we had time ticking... And I knew that trusting my gut was the right thing to do. We just got rid of them. We didn't have, I think we had one complaint. Um, And and Cosmo, um, thank goodness, and that's not just down to me, that's down to my incredible team, some of whom are actually here this evening. Um, We went back to being the number one um, best selling young women's magazine within six months. It would not have happened, I'm absolutely sure, if I had had this huge team, a huge amount of resources. I'm absolutely certain of it. Um, I could give you uh, lots of more examples from my life, but actually, some of our greatest thinkers and leaders, um, again, worked incredibly well under constraint. Um, Winston Churchill, um, one of our greatest leaders, arguably, not everyone will agree, but 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 you know, certainly one of our greatest um, speakers. Again, for, for most of his life, was seen as little more um, than an irritable backbencher, but it was only when he took on the mantle of, of prime minister. At, possibly one of the most uncomfortable times in history. And he not only discovered his strength as a leader, but his absolute power and conviction as an orator. Um, Frank Gehry, some of you will know, um, one of the world's most famous architects, his buildings are mesmeric. Um, He has always said the only time he could never design a building was when a very, very rich client gave him zero constraints to work with. And one of my favorite, kind of one of my personal heroes, um, whose constraint really kind of defined his career in a way, um, is Steven Spielberg. So, um, Steven Spielberg, um, back in the summer of, I think it was the summer of 1974 was a 27-year-old director, um, and he was working on Martha's Vineyard, shooting his second major motion picture. Now, he had a huge amount of pressure on him, because he, um, at that point in his career, he was only really famous. he would I don't know if any of you here will remember, but there used to be a very cheesy um, kind of murder mystery uh, programme called Columbo. So he'd only really done Columbo. Do you remember? If anyone's laughing, they'll remember Columbo. He'd only really done Colombo, and he had done one film called The Sugarland Express, which had been, um, it had rave reviews from the critic, but it had bombed at the box office. So at 27, he took on, um, he took on a second film, and it was a film which in itself was, um, was highly challenging. It was a scare movie about a giant fish. Um, and of course, most of you here will know, it was Jaws. Now, when he decided to film Jaws, um, Spielberg, unlike most directors up until that point, he had decided that he didn't want to shove some actors on a moving tank and put moving imagery uh, behind them to denote the sea. What he wanted to do was he wanted to shoot out at sea. And this really annoyed a lot of people. Some of the cast and crew almost drowned uh, because it took so long to rig up. Um, he often was left with very, very little daylight hours in which to film. So he was massively, massively behind in budget, and he was uh, he was behind on filming. Um, but his main thing was was well, how do I make a giant fish, a giant great white, scary? Now the funny thing, and I'm just going to mention this because it is funny, Uh, apparently at the time one of the producers said to him, can't you just get someone to train a great white and we'll just use that great white. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't think they quite understood what they were dealing with at that point. But so what Spielberg decided to do, he said, right, what I'm going to do is I want to create the most menacing mechanical shark imaginable. So he asked around all the special effects people he knew in Hollywood and all of them said, can't be done, I don't want the gig. So in the end, Spielberg actually coaxed a gentleman out of retirement to build Jaws. Actually, they called him Bruce after Spielberg's um, lawyer, I think. Um, So he said, look, can you build me Bruce? So anyway, he went, yeah, okay, I can do it for you. He built Bruce to the tune of, I think, about a quarter of a million dollars, which you can imagine was a huge amount of money in, in the 1970s. The shark arrived and there were quite a lot of problems with this shark because, first of all, um, it was slightly cross-eyed. So it it didn't quite have the menacing effect that he was hoping for. Um, It had these kind of comically white teeth. um, But the the most crucial thing that was wrong with, with Jaws was it kept suffering from mechanical failure and it kept having to go and be repaired. Time was ticking. Spielberg was like... It's not going to work. We can't delay this anymore. And so he was really, really forced into the absolute teeth of discomfort because he had everybody on his back. And actually, he did say, Jaws was a film that should never have been made because it was such an impossible effort. But through all of that, somehow, he came up with an idea. And the idea was this, of course, which was... And those of you that have seen Jaws will, will know this. He decided, well, what about if the viewers don't see the shark... Is it perhaps what viewers can imagine in their minds? Is that always going to be scarier than what a special effects guy can deliver? And I just want you to be the judge of that. I'm just going to show you a small clip, which is just for a few minutes. But I just want you to see exactly what he achieved by using very, very simple props and leaning also as well on John Williams's two-note score. So... So you can see I think you'll agree actually I think had he used mechanical Bruce it wouldn't have been half as chilling as that and actually of course what he added to that was you probably noticed he submerged cameras under the water so that actually felt like you were under the water as well. All of these things came about because his original plan his easy plan didn't work. And of course, that effect, those of you that have seen Jurassic Park will know that that is something that Spielberg made into a trademark of his because um, in Jurassic Park, of course, very famously, before the dinosaur arrives, you see the trembling glass of water, which again, you know, it, it inspires fear in the mind of the viewer. So obviously my creed occur to all of you is you should step into your discomfort zone. But you're probably sat there thinking, well, that's, that, that's easy if you're Spielberg, it's easy if it's you. Um, it's pretty hard to do that. And I suppose my advice for you would be this. It's that, you know, when you are frightened, think about what happens to your body. Think about the physiological sensations that you have, right? So your palms get sweaty, your, your stomach feels like it's been macrame Um You know, you, if you're like me, you need the toilet all the time. Um, these, we are told, are symptoms of fear. And that's our body telling us that we're afraid. But of course, if you think about what happens when you're excited, very, very similar... Um, physiological um, feelings. And so if your body reacts in the same way, then it's your mind. And so actually scientists have found that... I feel like I can hear the Jaws music in the background. Is that just in <laughs> my head? Um, scientists have discovered that actually it's what you tell yourself. So if you tell yourself, if you are feeling those sensations and you tell yourself, I feel challenged, I feel excited, I feel ready, something miraculous happens within your body your blood starts to circulate quicker around the body your lungs expand more oxygen gets to your brain and you make sharper and smarter and quicker I should say decisions but if you tell yourself that I'm feeling this way because I'm really afraid well I mentioned that earlier we've all seen what happens Um, you've seen stage fright people become completely clouded They, they, they become incapacitated and you only have a couple of nanoseconds in which to make that decision. When your body feels like that, you really got to tell yourself very quickly, am I afraid or do I feel excited, do I feel ready to take on this challenge? And trust me, it really, really works. Um, before I leave you, though, I suppose it's all very well and good me standing here and saying step into your discomfort zone. But I think one of the things, and I talk about this a lot with my team, um, I think one of my greatest worries at the moment is I'm not entirely sure that it is the message from culture, actually, that that we are having at the moment. Um, I think, you know, I, I, well, we all know we're still doing participation, you know, medals at school. You get a medal for first place, you get a medal for last place. We're still doing rainbow markings because we feel kids are too fragile to, to feel the sting of a red pen. Um, we call this generation, which is probably by looking at you, most of you, you are called Generation Snowflake. And, and you know, I mean, of course, it's a pejorative term, but it's alluding to your fragility and, and the idea that you crumble under pressure, which, of course, I don't believe is true. Um, we even, you know, I think we coddle ourselves, and I know that I've been guilty of doing that. You know, we choose to exist in an online world where we only ever need to bump up against the opinions um, and the worldviews view, world of people whose... Um, people whose views of the world chime with our own and and, and I really do think it's setting us up for a very, very dangerous place so my advice to you before I I leave you today is um, do step into your discomfort zone even if it is as much as seeing divergent points of view and accepting them Um, you know, you don't have to agree with them but but listening is the key you know, the human mind and body is made um, it is made for a little bit of stress it's made to be challenged Um, So please, you know, today, tomorrow, maybe this week, do something um, which doesn't make you scared, but which makes you feel challenged. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Farrah. You're very welcome. That was fabulous. Um, So just to explain, I'm going to ask Farrah a few questions, and then I'm going to throw the questions open to the audience. So start thinking now of your, your great questions, and you can... Push Farah into her discomfort zone. Discomfort zone. Um, so before I start, actually, what I loved the book. Oh, I really loved the book. Um, and one of the little tips um, Farah had in it was, if you're a bit, if you're in, if you're me, and if you're a bit nervous that you might forget all the good questions, write them on your hand. Yeah. <laughs> so Jerry, just, just in case, I have my my four questions I can ask Farah. But luckily enough, I think I've remembered them. So uh, my first question. One of the things I loved about your book was you're obviously a born storyteller. And it's full of stories about people who've pushed themselves that bit harder or who've approached a problem in, a, in an interesting way, kind of gone round rather gone through, or who've just fought through a very difficult situation. And what's your favorite story or the favorite person?
1: Well, there were were two stories, actually, which stood out. And um, I really should say that the lady that survived the 7-7 bombings, but I'm not going to. Mm -hmm. Um, She's amazing. I mean, she is an incredible woman. But actually, my two favourite stories one is there's a lady called Marcia Kilgore who um some of you may know or you'll certainly know her products so she is a she's very very rare in that she's a serial entrepreneur so she has success after success she launched Bliss Spa which some of you may know Bliss products it was kind of the first spa really kind of cool cutting edge spa she launched um Fit Flop, I think it's called, um, Soap and Glory. You'll know these beauty products. She was amazing because she really, arti- she, she was very poor. She was born dirt poor, but very, very bright. Um, never had any contacts in the world. Didn't really have a chance. But, but through sheer grit and determination, um, she, she became this huge success. The reason I like her story is because she articulated something, which I'm going to share with you now, because it really, out of the whole book, she was the person that when I listened to her, I was like, that's exactly what it's like. And she said, she said, there's a massive difference for it. She goes, don't ever get, um, don't ever get wedded to the idea of success because success, a bit like I think happiness, it's this teetering moment at the top of the mountain, and it is over. And, and actually, I, I remember someone once saying, success always feels like you're never quite there. It really does feel like that sometimes. Um, but she said, what you have to know is that most of life is grind. <laughs> but grind is really good because grind is. it's friction and it's hard, but you feel like you are moving somewhere. And she said it's really important to know the difference between a grind and a slog. And a slog, of course, is when you are, you're just banging away and nothing is happening, nothing changes. And that's why I always say to, to some of my team, there's no such thing as having a terrible job. I've had some jobs where I've been so miserable. But actually, they're really important jobs because they are, so you know when a job is a challenge, when it's a grind, and you know when a job is a slog so she articulated it very well the other thing that, that I just found really funny was the chap that um, started Tinder um, uh, it's funny for lots of ways mainly because he said he's a very very um, quiet chap and he was like you know I only ever started Tinder because I was nervous about meeting girls and when I went over I was rejected once I wanted to to make sure that I knew that she was going to be interested to share that experience. Yeah, exactly. And of course it all all changed very differently because, you know, what human natures do when they have a phone in front Ah. of them is, is, is interesting. But he was really interesting because again, with Tinder, they only had a very short amount of time in which to create this app and they had to make it cool because there were so many dating apps out there at the time. They didn't really. People think, oh, it's Silicon Valley. Well, of course it's not. It's LA. They didn't have a lot of money, and so they were genius. They said, first of all, they're like, well, we need to recruit students. Um, but also, the genius thing that I found was they had really no marketing budget. They had about a thousand dollars, and so they said, okay, where do the cool people go? Because if we get the cool people, then everybody will want to use this app. And they, um, they they printed the fire symbol on these big stickers as big as they could get them, and they went to Coachella and they stuck them on toilets on everywhere. So people thought Coachella had been sponsored by Tinder. And they're like, what is this thing? And then they'd go in the street and go stop people and go, hey, have you, are you on this app, Tinder? And it worked. So I like that story because, you know, it's something we all know. Yeah. Um, but it started from a really humble place. Oh, fantastic.
0: Um, my next question then. Do you think, this is a Women in Business lecture series, but do you think it's harder for women to step out of their comfort zone do you think there's something about the way we raise our girls that we well i've got two children a boy and a girl and i do sometimes worry that i protect my daughter a a little more than i protect my son
1: or maybe you've answered Uh, i mean i'm not a mother so i don't know but but one of the things i can tell you is yeah i mean i grew up with that it was that the girls are coddled, the girls need looking after the boys can and i thought it was terrible because my dad allowed the boys to have partners, um, girlfriends. The girls were not allowed. So I think you're right. But but one of my things when I think about my girls, which, of course, is... And and boys, we have a a big male audience at Cosmo, is when I joined Cosmo, I got rid of the the Cosmo tone of of voice. So when you edit a magazine, every magazine is supposed to have the Cosmo voice, the Marie Claire voice. And I was like, no, 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 no. You want divergent voices. And actually, you want things when you turn that page, because magazines are all about discovery, right? You want to read things which actually rile you, and you go... I'm not sure I agree. I don't know how I feel about this. So actually, what we do, and Danny who works with me, don't we? That's one of our things. It's like, is this going to get debate? Is this going to? Are people going to find this magazine, some of the things in it, uncomfortable to read? Um, So I think you're right. I think they do. And for me, when I'm talking about magazines, I don't Mm -hmm. think men's magazines... Well, they're all gone now. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I, I think so. But I'd be interested to see whether it's changed now, because, actually, I don't think women... I think women are really tough. Yeah. Uh, we just maybe think about it a bit more. But I think that's right, because, actually, I think... Um, and, and I don't want like to generalise about the sexes too much, but I think there's this belief, isn't there, that, that, that men have a bit more confidence, and so they go into things. And women, they sit back and they think about it. But, actually, I think that's a real... Um, I think that's a real skill because actually the thing about discomfort is you don't just throw yourself into anything, you go in with a plan. That's it. Because you, you, all you want is control. You want the illusion that you have control. That's all anybody wants. So if you think about things and you think you have control of the situation, you're more likely to A, go into your discomfort zone, but also make a success of it. And I think women are really, um, really good at that. Yeah.
0: So my final question to you is, and I think you, you, you talk about it a bit in the book and you talked about it tonight, was about the fact that when you you joined Cosmopolitan, about 60%, 70%? I think it was nearly 80%. Yeah, it was most (laughs) people. Everyone left? Yeah, most people. And you've got a really interesting chapter on sort of surviving social (coughs) discomfort, Right. Or I can't remember what the title is, but it's about basically, you know, we all want to be liked, and that can be a dangerous thing. So do you think you can lead if you also (laughs) want to be liked? I think you
1: shouldn't aim to be liked, I yeah. think you should aim to be respected. I think if you are liked as a byproduct of that amazing the thing is you don't get to go and have drinks I, th- that's why I would say to my team you know Danny will go we're going for drinks and I'm like you don't want me there honestly yeah. trust me you do not want oh, see <laughs> she's saying they do you do not want me there and, and actually I think somebody said that it was a gentleman who I had some great male mentors as well he said Farah let them go for drinks they will talk about you yeah. and that is absolutely what bonds them together and Give them some money. Let them go and buy drinks. Let them gossip about you and your life. That is right. So, um, but I wonder if it's harder for women. I just whether women are just a little bit less comfortable
0: with with not being liked. Well, we, we I just say deal, all, deal
1: he, with it. Yeah, I, I, and, do you know what? You, you you don't get to have both. Choose. No, I agree. You Choose. Have to choose. Yeah. yeah and, and that is the reality, yeah. isn't it? It's the like is you the do. top. Yeah. Um, It ain't always so nice at the top, and and so you have to know it comes with these caveats, which is you don't get to... Yeah, we're warning you all. Yeah, you don't get to to, Yeah, go down the pub and everybody's going, isn't my boss amazing? Because at some point, you are going to have to have a difficult conversation with them, and... Yeah. you know so, so no but I hope people well you are going to say yes I hope people like me I hope people, I hope <laughs> people respect me yeah I hope people respect I'm me I'm sure they respect you <laughs> on that note
0: I'm now going to turn the questions over to the audience to you guys um, I have two requests please if you ask a question can you make it a question and my, <laughs> my, my as opposed
1: to what a monologue
0: yeah <laughs> right, <okay. laughs> and my uh, my my second request is that you please say who you are and your affiliation and your yeah, full
1: name, because yeah, I always your think full name, name yeah, is Your full important.
0: name and where you're from. And wait for the mic to come to you. So who wants to ask a question? So person there in the middle of the row with a kind of plum jacket.
1: Hi, my name is Sarah Jones. I'm from New York originally, but I'm here with a custom program um, at LSE. And my question is how do you, in what ways can you create discomfort zones besides just going into them in your daily life or not even daily life but just in general so you have more opportunities to grow if you feel as though it's kind of you're slogging rather than grinding so, so, so sorry so the question is should you create your own discomfort zones yeah or how can you Yeah, well, well, actually, and that's preferable. You know, actually just finding yourself in a discomfort zone Mm. is not actually that great. You can, if if after a while you get, you you know, I was saying in in, in the green room earlier, someone said to me, it's better to have 20 um, different experiences in a year than 20 years of experience of the same thing. So by practice when you find yourself in a discomfort zone, you'll be able to deal with it. But absolutely, actually, what you should be doing is you should be putting yourself into one by choice that goes back to control. And that, of course, comes down to being pretty self-aware, knowing what you're... Do um, you know I think most people, when you get to a certain age, and I think by the time you get into your 20s, you know when you're coasting. You know when you are going in and you're feeling... Fine, but you're feeling flat. I mean, you know, I always say one of my, one of the, the an amazing thing, and people think I'm a real masochist for this, but there's nothing better than when you go home at the end of the day and you go, God, I had a really hard day, but God, I uh, like, I, uh, I, I got through it. That's a sign that you are pushing yourself and you're probably in a manageable discomfort zone. If you go home every night and you haven't got anything, and I'm talking about work here, you've got anything to say, you can't remember what you did. I would say you're coasting, but, but you will know that most people do if they're honest with themselves. To answer your question, yep. that was a okay. gentleman who got his hand up really quickly.
0: Okay, feel bad person right on the back with the kind of glasses and the. But now he's going to ask me a really hard yeah.
1: question. <laughs> um, thanks for your talk. It's really inspiring. Like, i I'm, I'm sorry that I. Uh, my name is Ambrose, and. Exchange student from Hong Kong, like I would like to know how you really step out of conversation zone in terms of like intercultural communication or like meeting people with different nationalities or second question is this, like, do you have any recommendation of like a uh, working uh, working working person or for me a student to really step out of the Converse zone Thanks so much you mean with meeting people yeah it 's really hard isn 't it it 's um Well, you know, being a journalist sometimes, um, and Danny, you'll back me up on this, it's really hard because sometimes when you're a journalist, you have to, um, you meet someone for the first time if you're interviewing someone, um, and they usually have a very, very different life experience to you, and so you have to find commonality really quickly. I always say, and, and, and you may have found this, it was like a Spanish Inquisition, but in the green room I was asking you lots of questions, and the reality is most people love, that's why I yeah. asked you all a question at the beginning. Um, you know, it was to take away the attention from me, and it was to think about everyone's favorite subject themselves. Um, you ask people questions, but you need to go in with a real killer question. So, um, I don't know, before, you know what I used to do when I first started out, and I used to have to go to parties by myself when I was a journalist, is I used to read what was happening in the news, And I was like, well, there's going to be someone that's got an opinion on this. And I would ask somebody an open-ended question going, you know, this was in the news. What do you think about that? And they'll monologue. Do you know what I mean? They will. And and so that's ask them questions about themselves. And hopefully they'll return in kind. They will ask you. And if they don't, then I'd move on to the next person.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. uh, Could we have the person at the back there in the black jacket sort of? Yep, yeah, on the edge.
2: Good evening. My name is Irene Brew Riverson and I work at the University of Westminster. Would you be happy for a student to work shadow you for a day?
1: <laughs> well, no, no, no. Is this same as Irene?
2: Yes, it's
1: Irene. Irene, um, on my Instagram at the moment, I'm giving away a mentorship. So, so you, it's pretty much that. And I don't think anyone's entered. Well, I think a few people have entered. I think a few people have entered. Um, so, and, and I, I, so I don't do work shadowing, mainly because my day is just me saying to Danny, can you cut my apple in half for me? I haven't got time. But, but, but I do a lot of stuff on my social media, because one of my big things at Cosmo was The media is pretty elitist, right? It's very difficult to to get a break in there. So we advertise all our jobs on my Instagram now. Um, I give away the mentorship on that. We're about to give away. So if you have any students, um, it's in the January issue, the scholarship. We're doing four scholarships. Um, We've never done it before, but the difference about these scholarships is we're doing everything. So... um, we will house you, we'll pay you food, we'll pay you travel. Um, and, and you basically get a complete training for a whole month and all of these scholarship winners will live together in this house. Um, so, so that's even better. So, you know, forget work shadowing me. There is the, mentor sh- the, the mentoring session, which is live now, but the scholarship, because, you know, um, we put competitions out there for people who haven't got a journalism degree. Perhaps they haven't even got A-levels. We put it out there because we're looking for people with voices. And, and you'd be amazed people the that, people that don't apply. I don't know if people think, well, yeah. there's two types of people. aren't There's people who think, I'm going to win. And there's people who think, well, I might, and then they never enter. And, and you'd be surprised at the number of people that don't enter these. They're really amazing competitions.
0: Great ask, by the way. <laughs> okay. The person in the green jumper with blonde hair, just sort of on my right, a bit further down. Yep.
2: Hello, I'm Emma. Um, I'm a social researcher.
1: What's your surname, Emma?
2: Glassy. Glassy? Glassy. Like Uh Thanks for your talk. It kind of made me think about the phenomenon of self-care. And by that, I mean the kind of trend that you sort of see around where people choose not to put themselves in perhaps uncomfortable or what they might de negative situations with people whether that's like a social occasion or I don't really feel like I want to do that and it made me well it made me your talk made me question where you draw the line um so where do you draw the line between kind of doing something that is putting yourself in your discomfort zone for a positive reason but also kind of where do you draw the line and kind of pulling yourself back and saying actually that isn't going to benefit me
1: I yeah, and, and you will you will know Emma because not all discomfort zones work out for people, and that's why when I was talking to uh, this lady whose name I've forgotten, Surya, Suga. Surya, say again, Surya, I think Surya. Okay, um, you got to choo- The best discomfort zones come when you choose to actively put yourself in it, and if you do that, then generally it's going to be a good thing because people pretty much know themselves. But, of course, some, sometimes it doesn't work. You, you step into there, and it's just too much. And, and the thing is, you know. You know when you're, you're out of your depth and you're out of control, and that's when you need to retreat. But I think the whole concept of self-care... I mean, self-care, my understanding of self-care is also just, you know, look after yourself, whether that's yoga, whether that's, you know, whatever. I don't think, although it may have manifested itself, in, it may have turned into this, self-care shouldn't be about, well just protect yourself from anything negative, because I'm not, I'm not sure I, I believe that's right, actually. I, I don't think that, 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 that's good. If we all lived... It's like when all those books were out about happiness and everyone thought they had to be happy the whole entire time. Of course that wasn't the point of all these happiness books. Of course it wasn't. And I think with self-care, I think the true message is because, you know, there's an anxiety yeah, epidemic going on, take care of yourself, take time out. I don't think, and I hope it hasn't become this, just coddle yourself from from difficult situations because that's really i think that 's dangerous ultimately um, can I also add that I think when I read your book one of the one
0: of the things that came through in the length of your book is that you i, I think it was a you gradually build up to it. You know, you don't throw yourself into I, doing a speech yeah. in front of yes. this kind of audience. You know, don't start there. Start, you know, you very much describe it in your own history. Start with, you make a small speech, a family yeah. event. Yeah. You know, baby steps. You know, you just don't push yourself so That's hard right. that you just think, actually, okay, I can't cope. I'm going to give up. Yeah. You know, really, it, all of this stuff gets easier when you just That's incrementally it. build it up. That's it. Anyway. the
1: gut works, because it's the pattern yeah. recognition, right? You could, you can yeah. rely on I it. Yeah, I cope with it last time. I can cope that's it again same thing bigger audience that's all
0: who uh person there in the green jumper with the glasses on the right back there
1: hi i'm alan and i'm from san francisco but i'm just in town until thanksgiving um but anyways my question was I i don't know if i'm speaking for everyone but for me at least when i think of moving outside of your comfort zone i think about like loneliness like how do you deal with that kind of Solitude when you're outside of your comfort zone. Thank you. Great speech, by the way. Thank you. So, hang on. So, how? So, so if loneliness is the problem, how do you remedy that? How do you get out of that? I mean, that's a whole other speed I mean, that's a hard, that <laughs> that that is um, no. But I get it because you know what? I'm um uh I'm a uh, I like being alone. I like my own company. But 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 sometimes it can be too too much. And, and 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 you generally know why. I mean, it's a bit like the chap at the back. It's like you. And the problem is, isn't it, with, with when you like your own company is you, you start to spend more and more time by yourself. And I have done this. You, you know, my husband does this. Um, and then it becomes more and more difficult to get out. And then you start to think, God, if I go to a social occasion, am I going to overlap or, because I haven't spoken to anyone? And so, so you can't get to the point, really. you know. Because some people, if you're an introvert, I, 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 you may be an introvert. I don't know. I naturally am. Your, your inclination is to just spend time alone, but you can't keep on doing that. You, you have to... If, like, you know, you want four nights of the week by yourself, you need to shake that up a bit. You need to have one night where you go out and you speak to people because it breeds itself, you know. It's... The more you do it, the more... I'm, I'm just... I'm being very inarticulate. Am I answering this question at all? <laughs> okay, okay. Okay.
0: Um, where's someone easily reachable? <laughs> See so quite a lot at the, the back. The, the the gentleman with the on the your side, further near the back. And the, I was about to say with his hand up. That's not very
1: helpful. <laughs> here. Yeah.
0: Yes, this gentleman here.
2: Hi, I'm Anthony, and I'm a gap year student.
1: Hang on, I can't see where. Hey. My oh, hi. Yeah. Uh A lot of the a lot of the examples you gave are related to solving or facing a difficult situation rather than a specific setback,
2: do you have any advice or examples for overcoming failure?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, failure is, um, it is really interesting. I mean, again, that's like a whole other speech, and I do a whole chapter in the book on, on failure, because, of course, now Silicon Valley... I think failure is this, this, this wonderful thing, and, and failure is really interesting because failure, of course, which or setback, as you call it, I don't think for a start we should be calling them setbacks. It depends how, you, how the failure happens. So if the failure occurs because um, of carelessness, then that's not good failure, right? But, but if the failure occurs because of, and we see this with um, Jeff Bezos, who, who founded Amazon, he's obsessed with failure, obsessed with it. Um, if the failure occurs because you are going into uncharted territory where nothing, there's no information, you're probably going to fail because you've got to, you've got to take a risk, right? And so some people go, yeah, that's good failure. Well, it's not. That's only half of good failure. Good failure is actually looking back and combing through what went wrong. Um, and I remember Sean Rat, who founded Tinder, because he said actually it was beset with problems. He said, I always try to ask why five times. Often it's more until you ring out exactly, exactly what went happened. And of course, you know, in Silicon Valley they have failure parties now where they they celebrate. So you've got to take the shame out of failure. But also failure is your, um, failure is a really amazing way to get a piece of information that nobody else has had. But you've got to be brave enough to turn and look behind you and comb through what happened. But I think failure is really important if it's done with, you know, with the right motives. So Farah, tell the story
0: of um, who Jeff Bezos has taken over, taken on to head up his Amazon Fresh.
1: Oh God, do you know what? I can't remember that now. But yes, but uh, um, well, Jeff Bezos—he is obsessed. So every shareholder letter I think he's done, he talks about failure. And he—they had um, Amazon. This isn't the HelloFresh, but this is Amazon um, had a phone. I think it was called the Fire. Was a car crash, and I remember he he made a talk going, God, if you think that was a, a, a failure, we've got loads. Yeah, we've got loads Wait. more failures coming your way. And actually, he often hires. I think he, I cannot remember now because it's so long ago since I wrote the book. But actually, the, the the guy, or I think it was two guys, he hired to run. Um, I don't know if it's called Amazon Fresh. It's like their food delivery. Yeah. The, the story that I because I, I read it
0: this weekend. Okay. Well, then, well then you? But he, <laughs> was that he took the he? There was a group of uh, a group of people who just had the most car crash of a of a firm in doing food delivery. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You know, they burnt through so, so much, much money. money. It had been, you know, everything that could go wrong had gone wrong. And he hired that team to head up his Amazon Fresh because he wanted he wanted the ones that had, you know, had the Made every mistake, learnt every painful, gut-wrenching message That's there was it. to be learned. And I thought that was... I thought, you know, well, you put, you're putting your money where your mouth is
1: uh, there. <laughs> and, and I think when you do job interviews now, people will be asked more and more. I start to ask it, what's been your biggest failure? And it's really interesting to see how people, A, how they talk about it, are they embarrassed about it? And also, how did they deal with it in the aftermath? It's a, you will start to see that more and more. I mean, actually, in I think Facebook at the moment, they're doing, which you should have done for me, they don't do... Um, CVs of all your achievements they do failure CVs where they talk about everything <laughs> okay. that they, they failed at so I think culturally the the, the messaging around failure is changing
0: yeah. you, I think you need to be proud of your failures and, and if it's done in the right, if way. It's done the right yes. way so be yeah. proud of them and, and also if someone asks you if, you if you can't think of anything you failed at then either you're really unimaginative <laughs> yeah. you've really stayed too far within your comfort zone yeah. or, or you're just not really a human being I think but anyway okay, right no. Could we have someone from down this side here, please? Person at the front in a navy gilet. (laughs) Yeah, thank you.
1: Hi there. Um, my name's Enrique. I just want to say thank you for your talk. Um, I go back to your talk title, how to, ex- how to succeed outside your comfort zone. And I'm just wondering, do you have any advice for the women out in here who want to ask guys out? Because that tends to be something that's really out of a girl's comfort zone. So I was wondering how would a girl deal in that situation? Well, it's been a long time since I was single. Um, and, and you know, my entire dating history I o- only ever asked men out I, I don't think I've, I've ever been asked out by a man in my life But I did it because, again, it goes back to control You choose, you don't want to end up with some guy Well, he just asked me out, I just kind of went for it But what I used to do, and this is not really good dating advice but And obviously, please, <laughs> do not put this anywhere um, Yeah, you please don't are aware This yeah, is, please don't this put is on this your social media <laughs> But when I was about 19 um, I, I was always and, and so you have to know what you want in a man And, and one of my things I really like in men, and actually in women as well is quite eccentric people. I like quite um, unusual people, and so IKEA, I think they still sell them. They sell these finger puppets um, they 've got like a frog and a sheep, and I would go out on a night out and i 'd have the finger puppets and If I saw someone, I found it. "This is really bad advice by the way are <laughs> you <asked> it. It. <laughs> on the dance' floor i 'd put the frog on and I'd tap the shoulder, <laughs> It was brilliant, it was foolproof Because actually the blokes that were like Oh my god you're a weirdo I was not interested in But the guys that found it funny There was an instant connection And they, they were generally really quite surreal um, In their thinking um, So I, 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 that's a really good anecdote But, but I think being inventive when, when you, I don't think anybody goes up to people now And goes hey do you, you want to go out I, I think do something unusual and surprising All anybody wants in, in a world of sameness Is somebody that's surprising And if they don't I would, the fact that you're at this lecture tonight, you have a curious mind. So, that's probably what you're going to want in a partner, right? So, um, you don't have to, I mean, Ikea do still sell those <laughs> um, But, but, but yeah, uh, you know, even if it's asking someone like, um, I often ask people, like, quite um, intense questions when I first meet them because it's a really good measure of what, what, they, are, what they are like. So, um, you need to think of a killer question or a, have a killer prop and and, 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 then, and then see what happens. It makes it a bit more natural. So,
0: I, I, love, I love the way this is where our women in business conversations Sorry, go.
1: <laughs> sorry. Yes. <I>
0: <laughs> Great question. Okay. Person at the back in the <clears> red <throat> top. <clears throat> well, hi, um, my name is Carly and I'm from Needland Thread. Um, something you said was, don't aim to be liked, aim to be Needle respected. You
1: thread, as in the dress company. Yeah. I love your dresses. I, yeah, I love, <laughs> your. love them. I love oh, them. Amazing. I wore it for my book launch, oh, black so dresses. Good. Very nice. Sorry. Go no, on. not yeah. at all. Um, it's a really good thing you said about
0: don't aim to be liked, aim to be respected. And one thing that I do at work and outside of work is really focus on being liked. And really, all I want to do is be respected. But Quiet. I spend so much time... I guess, trying to be liked, that I lose the respect part. So have you got any advice on kind of how to gain that respect quickly? <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> Without trying to see the friend zone with everyone? <laughs> Stop being nice. No, 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 you, you can have respect and be nice. Well, you know what? I, I, again, I always say to my team, it's like I... Um, the thing with being the boss, and I presume you're um, one of the bosses there, um, is... Unfortunately, or fortunately actually, you've got to be, um, you've got to have the toughest conversations that nobody else will have. You have to work later. You have to, um, you have to always prove. I don't think the days of, you know, when if you were the boss, people thought, just do what they say. I don't think it's like that anymore. I think actually, in a weird way, as a boss, you have to constantly prove to people. There's still a hierarchy, because someone's ultimately got to take all the, all the flack, but I think you have to constantly prove to your team why you're the boss, and that sometimes means, it, it, well, it does. It means working the longer hours, doing the really difficult stuff, not handing it over to somebody else. Often, sometimes, I, mean, I still um, try and edit every single piece in the magazine, and people think, well, you're mad. Stop doing the doing. I think doing the doing is the really important bit because while some people would say, well, you should delegate that, I actually think that there comes real... Um, comradeship in, in in a boss going, I am willing to do exactly what, what you are doing. Not all the time, of course, you can't. But um, I find that is the way I hope. Is that, is that how you get... Do you respect me? <laughs> What's the poor girl <laughs> going to say?
0: <laughs> <laughs> hey, you wouldn't yeah, cross me. Yeah. See? I said she was scary. <laughs> What about having a good mentor? Because it's lonely. It's lonely when yeah, you're the boss. Yeah, yeah, so it I is. So you have a very nice bit in, in your yeah. book about the importance of having a, 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 a really tough mentor.
1: Yeah, I think so. So, so well, there, there are a couple of things. I mean, there's, there's a couple of things I believe about mentors. Um, one is, in the book, I talk about having a care coach, actually. And, and the care coach is somebody, uh, for you, it would be somebody in, in your building, but probably not somebody in your direct team. But it's somebody who understands the job that you do. And what you do with the. care Care coaches, because the thing about feedback, right, is it's horrible to take feedback, but it's equally horrible to give feedback to people. And as a boss, you will know that you don't like doing it. Um, so, so when you find, when you identify this person, and it can't be a family friend, it can't really be someone you're very, very close to at work. You need to put aside a very specific amount of time with them. And when you meet with them every month or whatever, you, you. I often think it's really good to warn them what you want to talk about, so you don't just sit there with your mentor and go, "Got a really bad day today." You're, you don't get to have that with a mentor. Mentors are usually really busy people. But what you could do is you go, "Well, my problem is at the moment," and I, I think it's too vague to say, "I, I don't." Well, you do want to be liked. Right? It's not that you want to be disliked. Uh, I could tell you how to be disliked very quickly. Um, <laughs> But I think it's too vague to go, how do I get respected? You need to be very specific and go, I had this incident today. How, when I go into that situation again, how do I get respect? And I think as well, when, people, when you have a mentor, remember, it can be hard for mentors. So you have to smile. You have to say thank you. Um, and you have to be specific to get as much as you can. The other thing about mentors is, I was saying to you, I, kind of, I personally don't... Agree in mentors for very long periods of time. I think you get moments with mentors, like momentary mentorship in a way. Um, and I think mentors, you don't get to hang on to them. They're very special people in your lives and they come and they go, and that's absolutely right. Because actually, if you hang on, them, on to them for too long, it just becomes a moaning session. And actually, your mentor is no use to you if you're just coming in and slagging off your boss. You know, you know what I mean? So, um, yeah. Did that answer the question? Okay. no-one asked me about dating, please, because it's going to take a really dark turn. <laughs> uh. Can we have someone...
0: Well, I know it's difficult, but the, the person right in the middle, long brown hair. Yep, perfect. Thank you. Oh. So... Oh. <laughs> no, great, you do it, and then we'll go, and yes. then we'll go, and then we'll go back. Longish brown hair. <laughs> it's because I'm not allowed to say... Ma- I'm not allowed to say, lady or gentleman. I have to say, oh, person. Oh well, i did. You okay, oh, Well, but... there,
1: there you go.
2: So you mentioned like um, going, like I find comp- going out of my comfort zone to be quite distressing and sort of there's a lot of pressure there. Right. So and um, so, how would you and like you mentioned like stage fright and shutting down. So how do you sort of avoid like shutting down and that kind of?
1: Well, it, it all comes down to to that that. Oh, did, did you? Did we get your name? I'm. Uh-huh. Well, so, so it all goes down to what, what I said, um, earlier, which is you only, so, so when you, and you know when you're frightened, right? You, you feel it. I mean, you know, maybe speaking now, you feel those sensations. You have only a couple of literally nanoseconds in which to tell yourself that actually, and, and, and it feels so simple, and, and people think well, it can't be true, but I do this all the time. You just have to tell yourself when you're in that moment, and you're, you're breathing really deeply, you're like, oh, God, I feel this way because I, I'm, I'm really fired up, I've, I'm really challenged. And honestly, something changes. The minute you start entertaining the notion of, it's because I'm scared, it, it's really quite a powerful um, effect. It, it will overwhelm you. So you can't even think about the F word in that moment. You have to think about challenge and excitement. You, you have to.
2: Um, my name's Fazine. I'm an undergraduate student at Elysee and... I think it's so great how far you've come in your career, but I just want to know, do you have any regrets, particularly on your work-life balance, and do you think, if not now, will you have regrets in the future? Oh,
1: you know, I, did, I spoke very publicly. I, I chose not to have kids. And, it, it, yeah, I mean, look, I, I couldn't have children. It wasn't happening. Um, I just think we didn't have enough sex, personally. <laughs> um, but, but it wasn't happening. And actually, when I was forced to make the decision about do we go down the path of IVF, um, I'd I just taken on Cosmo. Now, that's not to say you can't have a high-powered job and you can't have kids, because you can, but for me, I didn't feel that I could. I just didn't think I was, I wasn't the sort of person, you see these women and they can do it all, and I'm not that person. And so I made a decision that actually I was going to choose my career. And actually, I, the difference is, of course, I didn't have, you know, some women, they really have that ovarian ache, and I didn't have that. But I may have it, and it may be too late, and so I, I don't know. And, and the truth is, I can't tell you whether it's a regret or not, because I, I simply don't know. And, and, and I really honestly believe this. I don't think there's any such thing as the right decision, but I think you make the decision right for you. So, you know, my decision, people go, well, you might regret not having kids. I can't entertain that. I have to decide that this was the right decision for me, and I'll make it that way. So I'm sure, you know, um, do I have regrets? There will be, but... Um, I I try not there's a lady here I don't know where she is but but she interviewed me just before we came on stage and she said um, I think it was something like what's advice where is she? Ah there she is Um, she did a very good interview and and she said to me what would you tell your younger self and it was something that I've only came to very recently and and I said What you need to do is you need to get yourself a rule book of what is important to you. So for me, like creativity, um, time alone is important. Um, It's a big, long list. You need to get a rule book because the the reality is you are going to change. That is the only thing we are certain of. You will not be the same person at 20 as you are at 40 or 50. I'm not the same person. But you've got to make sure that what's really important to you doesn't change. Um, and, and so, I think if you stand by that, if you get yourself a rule book and you live by that, and if you stray from it, you hold yourself accountable, I think you'll hopefully never regret a moment. That's what I hope. Thank you.
0: So I'd like to echo there is no such thing as the right decision. There are no, always, is there? There there really, there, there's no. one takeaway from this evening, I'd like it to be that one. Um, could we have the person down here with a pink scarf? the white shirt
2: hi my name is paula i'm half spanish half belgian i'm doing my master's at lsc now and my question just it was kind of based off what she just asked about your work-life balance how how do you take that because the whole thought of like woman can't have it all like you either have to choose between your job or your family or your partner i just want to know like if you have any tips for that how do you manage that
1: well, you don't say you can have it all. I mean I, I mean, I wrote a piece about this. It's like Cosmo came up with you can have it all, and, and, and it's not. I, I don't feel... Do you know, even those women who, when I talk to them um, about can you have it all, and they do, they went, no, because something gives, and, and yeah, that, that, that's... You, got, that's yes, no, you cannot have it all. And you shouldn't want to have it yeah. all, actually. It's, about, it's yeah. like with the happiness. You shouldn't want to be happy all the time. And I always say it's about having it all-ish. So, again, you've got to decide what does... If you have it all-ish, what, what do you get in that... And, and, and so, for me, I wanted countryside living. I wanted dogs i wanted a, uh, I wanted a husband who was a creative and, and, and I wanted a job where um, I was pushed, but I was still writing um, but i didn 't get to have the kids Now, of course it 's not to say that you can you can 't not have a high power job and have kids and I have to reiterate that because I think some people did think I meant well you can 't do both of course you can. But you need, you know, the parameters. But, but I honestly think, like having it all is, having it all is probably a more noble and realistic expectation of yourself. I think if you set yourself up for, I've got to have it all, you'll never. I don't think you'll ever feel quite fulfilled, really.
0: Person right at the back, with a headscarf.
1: You going to tell me Gold you have it all now? Golden
0: coloured headscarf. <laughs>
2: Uh, Thank you. I'm Nisa. I'm Elisa alumni. I was just wondering what is your motivation in life and if you have a role model, who is that person and for which reason? Thank you. What's my motivation
1: in life? God's very good question. Well, I guess my motivation, you know what, and, and again, I've only come to it recently, I think my motivation and why I do things is I, I'm interested in dialogue, I'm interested in words. And so my motivation, whether it's with the circle of friends I move with or whether it's the magazine I put out, it's to bring together divergent points of view. I think it's really, really important. And the fact that you don't have to agree with everybody, in fact, often I think you Shouldn't surround yourself with, with people who agree with you. So that's my motivation, particularly from my, my journalism. Um, and my husband, we really don't agree on a lot, but, but it makes, as long as you don't blame the other person, there's no right or wrong. It, it makes for an interesting dynamic. Do I have a role model? Um, Yeah, I I don't actually have a role model. I have, a bit like the mentors, I have role models in the moment. There are people that I will be sat in a meeting with, like I was sat in a meeting with our chief finance officer today, and she I've only found out, she's an amazing. um, She's our number two in the company, and she used to be a barrister, and I was looking at her just thinking, God, you're you're a really amazing woman. Um, And she's she's so down to earth, and she just gets things. She's the quietest person in the room, but when she speaks, she's the person everybody defers to. Um, So I think I find role models... Um, I mean, even Danny. Danny went undercover for nine months writing a feature um, on an on online suicide cult. It was a really brave piece. She was a role model for me when she did that piece. I've never done anything like that in my career. So I think you should look for role models in the everyday, because everybody has a, has a bit of, of role model in them. And most role models, if you have one person, they say, don't they, it's the cliche, like heroes, they, they, they invariably disappoint you. <coughs>
0: We have someone from this side of the room, maybe at the back. I,
1: dark hair. <laughs> blue, blue, gray T-shirt. <laughs> yep. Uh, hi, I'm Janice uh, I'm Janice Jacob and I'm doing my master's here in LSE uh,
2: so my question uh, okay, it might be a bit per- uh, personal I mean it might be my case but sometimes when I'm in a very uh, in, my, in a very discomfortable situation, instead of uh, not trying at all I end up trying too hard so where you end up overthinking and it's not a state where you are very creative or efficient or productive, so So how would you, I mean, do you have any suggestions for that? How would you manage that, like uh, drawing the line between trying hard and trying too hard where it ends up uh, in an
1: inefficient state? Are are
0: you talking basically about the curse of perfectionism? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I I have the same problem sometimes. I mean, you know, when I... um, If I could, I would do everything. I mean, I'm like you, and sometimes I can overthink things. And often, just as a tip, when I'm... um, You know when you're overthinking things, you start to get cloudy. And again, that starts to feel like a slog, doesn't it? Because you're not actually getting anywhere. Um, I go for a walk. I have two dogs, and I go for a walk. And it's amazing, when you stop, the the answer somehow comes to you. So that's where it goes back to the self-care. Self-care, I think she's gone now, the lady. Self-care and discomfort, they kind of should work hand-in-hand, actually. One can help um, the other, um, and I think, you know, if you go into something, you, you have to, I think sometimes perfectionism comes because you care so much about what other people think of you, their expectations. Um, unless, of course, you're the sort of person who actually just puts the expectation on, on yourself. Um, uh, you know, if I do something uncomfortable, I often try now to make a list of, say, no more than ten, five is best, of things that you can achieve in that situation. Any more it's just not doable. So if you make your list, some, I find making lists and, and keeping to numbers is very, very helpful because it, it stops you straying, straying out. Again, it goes back to being very specific. Um, but honestly, if you're getting to that point where you're just, you're just not making any traction, it's so simple, but you, you need to get out. You know when people go, I've got to stay in and do this work, you need the night out on the town because in the morning you'll come back to it and, and you will somehow find the answer.
0: Okay, I think we've got time for one more question. Um, person right in the front row with a pink polo neck, dark glasses or dark rimmed glasses.
2: Hi, yeah. Um, I'm Francesca Shilcock, I'm a journalism student at Roehampton. Um, we've spoken a bit about failure this evening, which is obviously really important. Um, how, do you measure, how do you measure success? And does it come from purely being within your discomfort zone and coming out the other side?
1: Not always, but but, but I think the thing that discomfort does is, uh, for me, success... Um, success for me has always been when I've discovered something surprising about myself or I've achieved something, but it's, it, it sometimes has um, a different outcome to, to what I thought and... and I think when you go into your discomfort zone, that's what I was saying about obstacles are really important because actually they teach you a lot about weaknesses but but also strengths. Um, Success is, I mean, success is so vague a concept and and I think it's really dangerous to say, I want to be successful because if you say, you you know when you ask sometimes kids and they're like, I want to be successful, well, that's really dangerous because it's so vague that actually you need a very specific beacon of light To know where you're going. So I always knew kind of I wanted to be an editor. And if you know what you want to be and what success looks like, then you don't get sidetracked. And when obstacles appear, you don't take different routes and avoid it. Because And if you keep doing that, your life goes horizontally. You know those people, and there's someone in the book um, who I know very well, who every time she came up against an obstacle, because she just knew she wanted to... She loved, wanted Loved
0: that story. Did you Yeah, she I just wanted to be...
1: She actually just wanted to be famous, but, but she just wanted to be successful. And so every time she was met with something difficult, she, she, she went a sideways way. And until it got to the point in her life, and I'm sure you know lots of people like this, is they start to get really toxic, and they look at other people who are ahead of them in life, and they go... Oh, life's just not fair. If I got all the breaks, then I'd be over there. Well, of course you wouldn't be, because you didn't do the hard stuff. You didn't go into your discomfort zone. But going into your discomfort zone is made so much easier by knowing what is on the other side. If you're not specific about that, if you just want to be successful, um, it's going to be really hard, and I think you're going to take a lot of diversions. Thank you. Okay.
0: So I think, sadly, it's time now to wrap up. Oh, well, thank, thank you for having me. You
1: so much, Farah,
0: on behalf...